So today, on Christ the King Sunday, as we move toward the conclusion of this series on Mark's Gospel, we've worked our way back to a part of the Gospel, Mark's Gospel, that we fast-forwarded ahead to back for Palm Sunday and for Easter Sunday, dealing with the last hours of Jesus's earthly life, and then, of course, looking ahead to his resurrection. Today, we're going to focus in on Jesus and what happened with Jesus basically from around 5 to 5.30 in the morning of Good Friday to 9 o'clock in the morning of Good Friday. So we'll be reading, working our way through, expositing a little bit on um, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. But we're going to start, I'm simply going to read Mark chapter 15, verse 2, and then verses 26 and 27. So I invite you to follow along with me, and then, as I said, we will work our way through, read through, and preach through uh, some of the larger part of this passage. Hear now God's word. And Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus answered him, You have said so. And then, uh, excuse me, to verse 25 and 26. Verse 25 and 26. And it was the third hour, that means nine o'clock in the morning. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Why did Jesus suffer and die? Now, the Bible and the very heart of the gospel proclaim the truth that any Christian should be able to affirm. In fact, if you are a Christian, you will affirm this, that Jesus died because of our sin, that Jesus died to redeem Israel. He was Israel's Messiah. That's the way he came as ultimately the Savior for all of us. That Jesus came to redeem, to buy back from sin and death his sheep, Jew and Gentile alike. And ultimately, Jesus came to redeem creation, to bring forth the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus died in place of Israel He died in place of everyone he came to save. He he took your place. Going through all of the bearing of the weight of our sin on the cross and with his suffering. And he did that forging the new covenant. The new covenant which he paid for and sealed in his blood, in his own blood poured out to secure the covenant, the new covenant. 
and to open the doors of the kingdom of God for all of us who believe in him, Jew and Gentile alike. And all this to the glory of his Father, for the love of his Father. Praise be to him forever and ever. Amen. Throughout this series, I've been highlighting what I consider to be clearly one of the two or three key verses in all the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' own words that are recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself as ultimately at God's right hand and the judge, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life, to die, as a ransom for many. In our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, addressing Christ as our mediator, the Westminster Confession says, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience, and I talked a lot about his perfect and active obedience back on Palm Sunday. You can go back and look at that or listen to that message. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but the Westminster continues here, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given unto him. Speaking of confessions, we might also refer to that classic baptismal central creed of the Western Church and the Southern Church of of, of anybody related to the Roman Catholic Church all the way through most of the traditional Protestant faith traditions, the Apostles' Creed. The fourth article of the Apostles' Creed is he suffered, right, under, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, was buried. Okay, let's stop right there. Pilate. Pilate. Now, just think about it. There are five persons listed in that core creedal statement that through the centuries and through generations has been understood as core to the affirmations of the Christian faith from the Apostles' Creed. There's four persons, right? There are four persons that are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. Four, five, five, right? Okay, so you have God the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, or in our old English, we say Holy Ghost. Okay, so I think it makes sense that the Trinity is listed, wouldn't you? Okay, the fourth is a human being. The fourth is Mary, born. Okay, but who's the fifth? Wait a minute, there's one. Is it Simon Peter? Is it the Apostle Paul? Is he anticipated in the Apostles' Creed? Is it um, Billy Graham? I don't know. Who, who should make the grade to be that fifth of the five people? Li- Who's the fifth person? 
Pontius Pilate. And he's in all four Gospels. I mean, some of you have saintly relatives, moms, dads. They're not in the Bible. They're not in the Apostles' Creed. Pontius Pilate makes it in. That ever bother you a little bit? You ever wonder why it's Pontius Pilate there? Pilate. Why? Well, big picture-wise, what the creed is saying and all the scripture is telling us is that God's gospel story happens for us in specific human history. It's not one of these, well, once upon a time in a land far, far away, if you can possibly imagine it and go there with me in my narrative mythological, you know, mythological world, my legendary world that I'm creating. No, no, no. In human history, specific history. And the Bible subjects itself to historical examination, and the witnesses subjected themselves to historical examination. So there's this issue of the historicity of Jesus' gospel, of Jesus' coming, of his saving work, and yes, his saving death. But also, the Bible, talking about Pontius Pilate, what the Scripture says, and what the Creed is telling us, is inviting us to be even more specific than the general message of the historicity of Jesus and his coming and his death and his resurrection. Because we're being invited, I believe, and this is what I want to focus on today, to understand the specific context and background of why on the horizontal level and ultimately the vertical level, Jesus was crucified. Yes, of course, he came to die for our sins. Yes, of course, he came to establish the kingdom. Yes, but specifically, treason. 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 A lot of people on, in political parties and hot moments start accusing each other of being guilty of treason. Treason. Sounds horrible, right? Well, it is horrible. That was the charge against Jesus. The chief priests, the elders and the scribes from the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, handed Jesus over to the Roman imperial prefect, a guy named Pontius Pilate, seeking for Pilate to convict and sentence Jesus to death for treason against the Roman Empire, and specifically against the Roman Emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was Pilate's big boss. Tiberius was in the line of the Caesars. Tiberius was understood by the Romans not only to be the emperor, but also a son of the gods. Tiberius Caesar. Now, the Jewish leaders convicted Jesus, so to speak, of the religious crime of blasphemy. The chief high priest, Caiaphas, in questioning Jesus, ultimately comes directly in front of Jesus, preached on this a few weeks ago too, and says, Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. Talking like God, because he is God. I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and glory. Basically, I'm coming to judge you. 
that, that, to the, and, and the high priest tears his garments and says, we've heard his blasphemy. You've, we don't need witnesses. You've all heard it. It's blasphemy. Pilate, though, as the imperial prefect from Rome, doesn't care about Jewish religious debates. <laughs> he, he's not worried about somebody blaspheming the Jews' little god. But if you mess with his guy, Tiberius Caesar, that's a different conversation. And the, the Sanhedrin does not have the power of the sword. They cannot execute Jesus. They need Pilate to do it. So the issue before Pilate is not that issue that we read about in Mark chapter 14, blasphemy before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin turns us around and tries to work this, that Jesus is committing treason against Tiberius Caesar. So that's why they bring him to Pilate, and that's what they're trying to sell to Pilate. Treason. Classically and originally, it's the crime of deadly disloyalty and threat, not just against the state, but against the royal sovereign. A sovereign's subject betraying his duty of loyalty to the sovereign, the king, the queen, the emperor. Now, look, any treason is bad, but let's put this in perspective. If a goat herder up in the Apennine Mountains of Italy, two days donkey ride from anybody else in human civilization, says something bad about the emperor. Is that a big threat to the emperor? No. I mean, could it be treason? Yeah. But who cares about this goat herder up in the mountains, right? But what if somebody in the royal circle tries to betray the emperor. That's a different conversation, isn't it? What if somebody that the emperor trusts with his own life betrays the emperor? That's getting really serious. That's a totally different conversation than the goat herder up in the mountains, right? Well, what if, this is getting really bad, what if it were a member of the household, the emperor's household, committing treason? Oh yeah, we're really concerned at that point, right? So let's take a step back. Lucifer. Who exactly was Lucifer? Was he a goat herder in heaven? No, he was an archangel, like right there operating at the highest level for God Almighty. He committed treason. Well, what about Adam and Eve? Were they just some random goat herders God created and threw out somewhere in the universe? No. They were made, just like you are, in the image of God, to be members of God's household and to be God's regents. Did you hear that? Regents on earth have dominion here in, in all this creation I'm giving you, and I'm giving you this special garden, I'm, and I'm totally trusting you with this pristine creation I'm giving you. Now, if Lucifer commits treason against God, that's, that's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? What about people? It, Lucifer wasn't even made in God's image. Think about 
people made in God's own image. People are supposed to be part of God's extended family. Obviously, we're not divine, but we're part of God's extended family. Virtually children of God. Trusted with the garden. You betray the sovereign. That's serious treason. R.C. Sproul says that all sin, not just Adam's, but yours and mine, is cosmic treason because we are in rebellion. Whenever we try to do things our way instead of God's way, that is cosmic treason, rebellion against God. Wanting to rule ourselves and our families and our stuff, because it's ours, right? These children are mine, God. I may let you help out a little bit. That's treason, taking over. Um, Treason was the charge on which Jesus was crucified. Treason versus Tiberius and Rome. That's what the chief priest and the elders and the, the scribes came representing the Sanhedrin to sell Pilate on. Now, there's all kinds of irony going on in this story. First of all, let me just say a word about Pilate. Pilate was a prefect. He was an equestrian. He was a knight. He's not, the, he's not a senator. He's not from a senatorial family. He's not the highest level, okay? And he is only a prefect. He works for the legate, who is the big governor up in Syria, um, Pilate is just a prefect, uh, but he does work through the legate of Syria, ultimately for the big boss, Tiberius Caesar. Now, we know about Pilate. Pilate is mentioned, as I said earlier, in all four Gospels. I mean, he's highlighted. He's also mentioned by uh, Paul when he tells Timothy, remember, Jesus gave the good confession about who he is, right, the king of the Jews, before Pilate. Um, Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about Pilate when he says that Christ, uh, he's talking about the persecution of the Christians during the time of Nero, and he talks about the fact that um, they're named Christians after Christ, um, who was put to death when Tiberius was emperor, Uh, by Pontius Pilate. We've got references from Josephus and Philo, Jewish writers from the first century also, Josephus pretty extensively and Philo pretty extensively about Pontius Pilate. Uh, The interesting thing is, even with all that, sure enough, after historical critical thinking in the 19th century, when you move into the 20th century, there are a whole lot of writers uh, writing even PhD dissertations about the fact that, well, Pontius Pilate is a legend, he didn't really exist, you know, it's just another one of these biblical things where they throw out names, and, um, and then we, they, they ran into a problem, because in June 1961 at Caesarea Maritima, which is mainly where Pilate was based, he'd come into Jerusalem for the holidays, but he's mainly at Herod's port city, Caesarea Maritima, uh, an inscription leading into the amphitheater, at Caesarea Maritima was uncovered, and it, it, it has, you know, it's, it's pretty much broken up, but it has these words. A Tiberium means the amphitheater is being dedicated to Tiberius, you know, Pilate's boss, the emperor, 
Pontius, Pontius, okay, Pontius Pilate, Prefectus Judea, the prefect of Judea. You can see it there. I took that picture last summer when we were at Caesarea Maritima. That's obviously just a replica of the stone that was uncovered. Uh, the, the original is in uh, the museum in Jerusalem. You may have been there to see that as well. That's who Pilate is. There's all kinds of irony going on here. While Pilate was governing Judea, he's there from 26 to early 37, okay? 26, A.D. 26 to early 37, So he's there the whole time of Jesus' public ministry in the early stages of the church. Tiberius is basically a sordid life recluse on the Isle of Capri. He's built out his big palatial digs at Capri. He's afraid of being in Rome. He has a guy named Sejanus, who is his effectively his ruler in Rome, And he's there with prostitutes and everything else and just trying to save himself from plots in Rome. That's the emperor. That's Tiberius. So here are your two king candidates of the world. Tiberius, the guy who has prostitutes coming and entertaining him as he holds up because he's paranoid and afraid for his life at the Isle of Capri. And you've got Jesus who's willing to put it all on the line. This is ultimately the choice of life. I mean, obviously, Tiberius is an extreme version of politicians and governmental leaders. <laughs> That's, you got them, and you got people like us, or you got Jesus. If you're not going to be loyal to Jesus, let me just tell you this, because this is where the irony is coming. You're committing treason against the true king, because the true king is Jesus. That's, that's what all this story is basically telling us. And it's, it's ironic that Pilate, uh, you know, kind of mid-level functionary, guy who's there to uphold the peace in Judea, is the guy who lays the sentence on Jesus with great mockery. Mockery all around, staggering and awesomely humbling for us is the invitation of the gospel. That in the place of us, of you, Jesus died under the sentence of treason when the truth is we're the traitors. I mean, anybody who has ever sinned has committed treason against God. That's what the Bible is telling us. And Jesus dies in our place. And as we work now through this scripture, I want you to be reflecting on what Jesus has done for you And will you be loyal to him? Will you believe in him? Will you follow him? So the scripture. As soon as it was morning, this is dawn, probably around 5, 515 in Jerusalem. uh, The chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Under Jewish law, they cannot convict Jesus at nighttime. So the thing that they did a few hours earlier, probably around 2 in the morning, they they need to wait. They're also supposed to wait a a later day to convict Jesus of blasphemy. And so they're really playing around because under Jewish time, 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning is the same day. But, But they're at least waiting until dawn. Okay, so they're trying to be legal here, so to speak. Um. 
so they hold a consultation and convict Jesus now. And I guess they supposedly convict him of treason against Tiberius too. And they bound Jesus. Is Jesus a threat to them? No, but they want him to look like a, a violent criminal when they, when they take him to Pilate. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Just like Judas delivered Jesus to them, now they're handing Jesus over. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Because this, this is what they're trying to sell him. He's guilty of treason. There's been no king of the Jews since a guy named Herod, Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a young boy. You may remember that, right? Um, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him. This is Jesus' one line before Pilate in Mark's gospel. You go to John, you go to Luke, you get a lot more, but this is, this is it, and this is the key. Um, tsu leges. You say. You say it. You just said it. Suleges. That's Jesus' response. The chief priests try to lay it on, accusing him of many things. Again, if you go over to Luke, you'll see all these different things about trying to tear down the temple, this, that, and the other stuff, and he's trying to disrupt our nation. And Pilate, verse 4, asked him again, have you no answer to make? In other words, every human being who's ever been subject to the death penalty in my presence starts arguing, defending himself, yelling at other people, you know, making up excuses. You're not saying anything because Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 52 and 53, right? So Jesus, the only answer Jesus has given that's a central answer to the accusations is, you say it. Are you the king of the Jews? Yep. Sulegeis. Now Jesus is not, he's, he's not trying to weasel out. He's not trying to yell at them or uh, cast crossed accusations, you know. Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Thaumazo. He's amazed. I've never seen anybody like this. This is not the way people are. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Bar-Abbas. Not going to do a sermon on this today, but I just want to make sure you remember this. Bar-Abbas in Aramaic means son of the father. And according to some text of Matthew's gospel, his first name is Jesus, Bar-Abbas. So, man, you got two different Jesus Barabbases. You got two different sons of the Father, right? You got the guy who's a murderer, who was part of the insurrection, and you got Jesus of Nazareth. For whom would you vote? Well, guess what? Because we're all into committing treason when we think our political future is on the line. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them, and he answered them saying, Um, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And he perceived, he got this, that the religious leaders, the chief priests, uh, were envious of Jesus. And so he thought maybe the crowd will go with, you know, this spiritual guy, this poor guy, this guy that's already been beaten up by them, already has bruises all over him, and has been spat on all night uh, by the religious leaders. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Bar Abbas instead. And Pilate 
again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, the murderer. I mean, it doesn't get any more pronounced here that Jesus is going to die in the place of the murderer, right? The treason, the, the real treason guy, just like he's going to die in place of you and me, okay? Um, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there's a politician, right? Released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Uh, don't read over that too fast. Scourging and Crucifixion in Roman Tradition, an article by William Edwards, uh, MD of the Mayo Clinic in the Journal of American Medical Association, 1986. Scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in cases of desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers, lictors, or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin uh, and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. Now, let me remind you of this. Don't get confused. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a Roman citizen. He could only be beaten 39 lashes, right, under, under Jewish law. And under Roman law, he's not supposed to be scourged at all unless he's subject to execution. Paul can also appeal to Caesar. None of that applies with Jesus. Jesus was totally, legally speaking, at the mercy of Pilate, and these scourgers could do anything they wanted to to Jesus. There's no limit to what they could do. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, the praetorian, the courtroom, and they called together the whole battalion. Speron, it actually means cohort. Let me make this clear, because my little kind of boyhood vision of this is there's about six or seven soldiers around. You're talking anywhere from 450 to 600 soldiers. That's a cohort. You've got a big audience and a whole lot of people to come taunt Jesus and spit on him. Have you ever been publicly spat upon by a few people? Hmm? 
You ever been subjected to just being kind of surrounded by a crowd and being spat upon? Can you imagine having 400 to 600 Roman soldiers applauding and each coming to spit on you? You want to talk about treason. I mean, this is the son of God. This is the real king. And this is what he's undergoing. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Probably didn't look like this. Probably there's a type of palm that has thorns on it that really is very painful that also kind of looked like a laurel wreath. That's probably what they're using in Judea for this crucifixion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, um, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Now, now, in classic understanding and human understanding, when you hail somebody, that means that is your leader. Heil Hitler, that's a big statement. I know that around here, certain athletic departments to promote their teams say stuff like that too. It's treason unless you're saying hail to Jesus. Let me just make this clear. There's only one person you should say hail to. And it's not a dog. It's your God. Um, but anyway, so they, they, they saluted him, you know, in total mockery and derision. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. Yep, the same clothes that the woman reached out to to be healed. Yep, the same clothes in which Jesus was transfigured in heavenly glory. Yep, those clothes. And he's going to lose them again at the cross. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means it's Aramaic, place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That's Roman law. They have to do that to try to get him in a little bit of a stupor, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is in all four Gospels about the clothes and the casting of lots. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 22 that David wrote a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. And it's interesting. It's in all four, and it goes to the heart of Jesus as the king being totally humiliated for our salvation. And, and about his very clothing. You know, in heaven, the reason we're righteous is we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So just think about that when you hear about the clothes. And it was the third hour. This means it's 9 o'clock now. He's gone through basically three hours of abuse and having to carry the cross towards the end. Now it's 9 o'clock when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, here it is, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Evil collusion put in there. 
your sin and mine put in there, our treason put in there. It was well represented, the full force, by the inscription above him, King of the Jews. Yeah, our, our treason put him there. The nails secured his wrist or his hands. But what kept him there? He's the son of God. You want to talk about legions. He can call legions of angels anytime. 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning, 10 o'clock. Anytime he wants to. What kept him there? His love. His love. Because he would not commit treason against his father. And he loved you that much to bring you into his father's kingdom. That's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You can have your Tiberius. You can have your latest politicians whom you love. You can have your football teams all you want. But give me Jesus, the king. I pray you'll make the same decision. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.